Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of something here um, from a website. I'll, I'll give you some context here in a minute. You'll get the context pretty quickly. But the beloved community is a term that was first coined in the early days of the 20th century by the philosopher-theologian Josiah Royce, who founded the Fellowship of Reconciliation. However, many of you know this, it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., also a member of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, uh, who popularized the term and, and invested in it with a deeper meaning which has captured the imagination of people of goodwill all over the world. For Dr. King, The beloved community was not a lofty, utopian goal to be confused with the rapturous image of the peaceable kingdom in which lions and lambs coexist in idyllic harmony. Rather, the beloved community was for him a realistic, achievable goal that could be attained by a critical mass of people committed to and trained in the philosophy and methods of nonviolence. Last paragraph. Dr. King's beloved community is a global vision in which all people can share in the wealth of the earth. In the beloved community, poverty, hunger, homelessness will not be tolerated, will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. Racism in all forms of discrimination, bigotry and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of sisterhood and brotherhood. In the beloved community, international disputes will be resolved by peaceful peaceful conflict resolution and reconciliation of adversaries instead of military power. Love and trust will triumph over fear and hatred. Peace and justice will prevail over war and military conflict. Now, this is clearly about the idea of the beloved community, um, which it explains Dr. King popularized, right, during his uh, ministry uh, during the civil rights area, era. This quote is directly from uh, the King Center website, um, and I wanted to use their words instead of explaining it myself. Uh, the, the King Center was founded by his wife, right, Coretta Scott King, uh, and I just think it captured the essence of the uh, beloved community, right, and it aligned with the vision Martin Luther King Jr. had for our nation and for our world. But why bring this up? right now, right? Why do I want to bring up the beloved community? Well, during Lenten season, we have been in a series called Hunger and Thirst, which is based on Matthew 5, 6, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And why, why are we doing this during Lent? Because during, or Lent is a 40-day season leading up to Easter that is often marked by fasting, right? I said this a couple weeks ago, but fasting is the, the Christian tradition, uh, it's a reminder of our spiritual hunger that exists. We physically hunger in order to remind ourselves of the spiritual hunger that we are facing. The spiritual hunger for more of God's goodness, and this is a good thing, right? A.K.A. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing we will be filled. Now, I'll be honest, most of our sermons during this season have been a little bit more individualistic focused, right? Let's just, I can just use myself as an example. Two weeks ago, I preached on the idea of not being satisfied by the manna of this earth, but being satisfied by the bread of life, right? And then what did I challenge you to do? 
I challenge you to think about, like, what is it that I am replacing Jesus with in my life when I'm looking for satisfaction, right? And I think, like, I preached it. I think it's probably a good thing to think about, right? It's not all bad to think sort of like individually, right, personally, where do I need to grow? But if we're not thinking communally as well and only individualistically, I think we're going to miss the mark. And this is where the beloved community comes in, right? Dr. King dreamt and hoped for the effects of a community truly living life together in a way that urged each other toward righteousness. In other words, what is the outcome when we hunger and thirst for righteousness together? King's outcome was the beloved community, and honestly, it's an outcome that I am particularly drawn to. So as a result, this morning, as we explore what does it look like to hunger and thirst for righteousness communally, I want to explore what the beloved community could look like for us, particularly here in Uptown. Now, if any of you have been around uh, when I've preached, and I know that you have, um, I I often approach this in terms of like, I'm going to dive real deep into a text uh, and I'm going to pick apart a text. We're going to talk about the context, everything like that. And then we're going to talk about how that applies to us. This morning is going to be a, bit, a little bit different. So if you're new here and you're like, well, they read the Bible this morning, but then he talked about something else. Like, this isn't always my, my flow. Sometimes I'll do this, but it's not my necessary flow. But this morning, I do want to look particularly at King's writings, some of his thoughts about the beloved community and how they even apply to Uptown today. In particular, because he was heavily impacted by the word, right? And that's going to show through as we explore some of these ideas this morning. So, this morning, like I said, I want to talk about the possibilities of our impact in Uptown. If we sought to hunger and thirst for righteousness together, what would it look like? What would we do? And if we did do that, what would be the manifestation of the beloved community look like here in Uptown? With me? All right, one of you are. Okay, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into it. Lord, uh, yeah, I just pray this morning that you are the one who is put on display, Lord. Um, that we recognize that the, the beloved community um, is just a manifestation of your love, Lord. That we consider the, just the realities, the breadth, the depth, the height, the width of your love for us. Uh, and how, because we are lavish with it, uh, we can love others in the same way, Lord. And so let us even just, just look like a glimpse of your love for people, Lord. Um, I think just even a glimpse, and people would see just how good you are. So Lord, uh, let this morning be about you, not me. Let, uh, let us remember your words, not my words, your glory, not mine, and help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Here's the same I pray. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and I, I began to talk about the beloved community, of course, but I want to define, like, what is the beloved community, right? Or why am I drawn to the beloved community? The first reason is the belovedness as a requirement for those in community. Now, I'm going to take a risk here, but before our current series on Lent started, we were in a series on Ephesians, right? We were doing the first three chapters, and at the, this is the risk. At the risk of you telling me you weren't listening at all, does anyone remember like any of the major takeaways that we were looking at for the first three chapters of Ephesians? One at a time, please. It's okay, I'll tell you. Okay, okay, okay. No, no one is brave this morning. I get it. Um, you weren't listening. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I'm just kidding. The, the main one I want to recognize is that 
our, our belovedness in God is just hit, or it hits us over and over and over in Ephesians, right? Do you guys remember the, the sort of structure? First three chapters, like what is true of us as a result of what Christ has done? Last four chapters, which we're going to get to after this Easter season, are just like, what do we do in response to these truths of our belovedness in God, right? In other words, what was true of us as a result of what Jesus did on the cross? What is our Christ identity? And I cannot think of a better word for that identity than beloved. Our identity as beloved children of God, very loved. Because what is true of someone who is beloved? They have to be both fully known and fully loved, right? And why are these, both these ideas important, both fully known and fully loved? Well, uh, Tim Keller, uh, a pastor I read a lot, said this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw. In other words, if I tell you that I love you and I don't know you, it's like kind of nice, but like, what does that mean, right? It's like, oh, that person can say nice things, right? If I know you and don't love you, this is where it gets complicated, ugly, right? It, everything inside of you that has said, don't share that, don't share that secret, right? Don't tell them about this. Like, just keep to yourself. Everything would be confirmed if I knew you and didn't love you, right? I remember instances where someone learned something about me and it impacted our relationship in a negative way, right? And now these are, I, I do think that these are few and far between, um, but it does happen and it is incredibly painful, right? But to be fully known and fully loved, now that's the good stuff, Right? Your fears melt away as a close friend or a partner. Know they, they find out something intimate about you, and instead of moving from you, they move toward you, right? And Keller hits on a really important aspect of this. That, that works for us, that is good for us, because that idea of being beloved, being fully known and fully loved, reflects the love of God, right? Think about it. God knew the world. He knew the depths of our sin. He knew the ways in which we rebelled against him. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. In other words, God saw the world and yet God loved the world, right? Fully known and fully loved. I want to throw up a couple of verses um, to remind you of your belovedness in God. Romans 9, 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people and I will call her my beloved, who is not my beloved. In other words, we move from not loving God, not being beloved by God, to belovedness, right? Mark 1.11, and this is something that he says to Jesus, but I think as a result of what Jesus did on the cross is true of us. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, right? You are my beloved daughter, with you I am well pleased, and then Zephaniah 3.17, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. 
Like, can you, can you just imagine the God of the universe rejoicing over you with singing? Rejoicing over you, right? Like, we don't do that a ton in our culture, maybe like a happy birthday or things like that, but like, th- it happens in other cultures, and this is just like a beautiful, beautiful thing, right? Okay, so that's belovedness, right? Being fully known and fully loved. And the second half of this idea of the beloved community is, of course, community, right? Experiencing the belovedness within the context of community. I think finding someone or a few folks who, like, really love you for you, who know you and love you, is a really, really good thing. It's, it's been really, really powerful in my relationship with Jamie. Um, she, has, she knows me very well, loves me very well, right? But being fully known and fully loved in an entire community, I think that leads to a different type of freedom and grace that most people never experience on this side of eternity, right? I am drawn to the beloved community because it is a community that reflects God's love to one another and to those outside of the community in a way that is transformative, just like the cross was and is, right? So, How do we know when we are reflecting or when we are looking a little bit like the beloved community? So from here, this is what I'm going to do this morning. I want to, we just defined the beloved community, right? What does it mean to be beloved? What does it mean to be beloved in the context of community? But now I want to highlight a few ways that this can look, and then we're going to talk about how do we get there, okay? So what what does it look like in the context even of Uptown, and then how do we get there? Now, our list of what it looks like is not going to be comprehensive. I don't have a ton of time here, right? And there are some obvious overlaps between, like, what it looks like and how we get there because the practice almost is, like, the community in and of itself, right? But if you think something doesn't fit categorically, like, just keep that to yourself, please. Um, Now, many uh, ideas that I do use here uh, come straight from a list that I have a picture of her, but Dr. Arthur E. Wright formulated from her studies uh, of King and the Beloved Community. Uh, she's part of the United Methodist Church. She's a peace advocate. Uh, she works in social justice ministries in the D.C. area. Um, I didn't actually find a ton on her, so I don't think she's a, like a big name or anything, but her list was like, it was balling. So we're going to use it, okay? Um, so, but if you do end up wanting to he- see more of what she says about this, you can Google 25, um, I can't remember, 25 things about, of the beloved community, and then it'll come up, okay? But I just pulled out like five or six here that I wanted to highlight for us. First one, recognizes and honors the image of God in every human being. We have often talked about the Imago Day being a motivation for our work here uh, in justice, right? One of Missio Day's three values is honor, the immeasurable value that comes with being an image bearer, and the beloved community recognizes this, Right? The late John Lewis, who many of you know, he's the civil rights activist who was alongside King. He was eventually a uh, Georgia representative, explained his motivation for the work he did this way. And every human is a spark of the divine, right? The Imago Dei. So how does this play out practically? We're going to talk a little bit more about this at the end, but I think there are tons of ways this can happen. So just to, to highlight one for us here in Uptown, this is what I want us to think about. What are ways in which the Imago Dei is attacked here in Uptown, right? Or who in particular has their Imago Dei attacked? Who in particular experiences the dehumanizing effects of some of our systems and structures 
here in Uptown, here in Chicago. Again, I'm going to talk more about some of this idea at the end, but I wanted to just for us to begin to think about that, right? Where do we see the Imago Dei marred um, in our community? Okay, next one. Offers radical hospitality to everyone, an inclusive family rather than an exclusive club, right? Those are really small. Sorry, so you can just listen to me. Um, we are in the era of the culture war, war are we not? Um, while there's nothing new under the sun, the culture war is not necessarily a new idea. I know in my lifetime, the, the us versus them mentality is the strongest I've ever felt it, right? And the church has been the leader of the conversation in a bad way, right? A fortress-style Christianity, though, is antithetical to the gospel. Before Jesus' coming, I want you guys to think about it. There was a lot misunderstood about the God of Abraham, right? The religion became a come-and-see religion, right? Come and see our temple. Come and see the God's chosen people. Come and see our city. But when Jesus comes, what does he tell the woman at the well? Like, where can she worship? It was in spirit and in truth. See, Jesus transformed the mindset of come and see to go and tell, right? From this fortress Christianity to one that is part of the larger community, right? And yet, I think many of our conversations, even about community, are very much about how we impact each other within the room, right? And yet, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so, I just want to highlight, like, the beloved community is an external community, right? We are not only, like, we care for each other in here. Do not get me wrong. Like, bear one another's burdens, right? But there's a reality that we have to consider, like, who is not in the room, right? And how do we serve them? The beloved community offers that belovedness to everyone, not those who just happen to find themselves in our building, right? We are not asking people to just come and see here in the room. Our radical hospitality goes and tells about the beloved community and invites people into it. Okay, and then I have a couple more here um, that I just wanted to highlight quickly because I think that they speak for themselves. A recognition and an affirmation, not eradication of differences. I think that there's this idea of like a, this, this often plays itself out in race, like post-race society, uh, we no longer see color, like things like that, right? Like the beloved community does not eradicate differences, right? It's not about uniformity. There's unity to be had, but not uniformity. Differences are good. Differences are highlighted, right? Next one. Shares power and acknowledges the inescapable, inescapable network of mutuality among the human family. I need to use, like, words with fewer syllables, I think, sometimes. Um, okay, shares power, acknowledges the inescapable network of mutuality among the human family, right? Like, power is just a reality that we have to grapple with, and if we're not sharing it, if we're not inviting people to the tables of decision-making and things like that, it's not a beloved community, right? Gathers together regularly for table fellowship and meets the needs of everyone in the community. I think that's a, a pretty straightforward one. And then acknowledges limitations, lack of knowledge or understanding, and seeks to learn. In other words, it's humility, right? Like we are willing to step into things, and we are also willing to recognize when we fall short in particular areas, right? That's a mark of the beloved community. Okay, so if that is what is maybe some, some markers of the beloved community, what I now want to look at is how do we get there, right? How uh, do we sort of begin to create the beloved community. 
I don't have time to expand on this, but I think it is important to know before I go into this uh, that Keene shows that there are three types of violence, what he calls the triple evils. Uh, these are sort of like the uh, antithesis to the beloved community. These are what are at work against the beloved, com beloved community. He names them poverty, racism, and militarism. Um, and they're sort of broader, like we know what those words can mean, like maybe outside of this context, but they're sort of broader uh, categories that he uses. Poverty does not just relate to money, but resources in general. So we're thinking school funding, right? Uh, food deserts, redlining practices that still have effects today, right? That, those work against the beloved community. Racism feels like a pretty self-explanatory one, but he goes on to sort of expand it uh, to other factors like sexism, colonialism, things like that, right? And then militarism is best broadly explained as our nation's love for violence and the way that plays out. So if these are at work against the beloved community, the answer to what has to be done to establish the beloved community is simple. Justice. Uh, actually, I texted Tiana to see if she was here because I was going to credit her with this. Uh, Tiana shared a quote on her socials from Letty M. Russell, and I'm going to read that over us this morning. Letty says, Hospitality is the practice of God's welcome by reaching across difference to participate in God's actions, bringing justice and healing to our world in crisis. Now, I think how hospitality is defined here is a really, really great way to explain how the beloved community is established, participating in the justice and healing that God is already doing in the world of crisis, right? Now, and we can be like, I want us to acknowledge, like, lots of folks are participating in works of justice, right? And those outside of the church are obviously included in that. So what does our work of justice toward the beloved community in particular look like? And so what I want to do this morning to end is I want to look at three markers of our work of justice toward the beloved community. Our work of justice, our work of extending belovedness must be these three things. Proximate, strategic, and nonviolent, okay? So we're going to walk through these three things uh, to end this morning. First one, proximate. I hope that the um, importance of being in proximity to our neighbors is a bit of an obvious one on here, right? But, be, but hear me say, we cannot, let me say this again, we cannot extend someone a glimpse into their belovedness if we are not in proximity with that person, Right? And we cannot see the ways in which particular people in our society, particularly those society deems as on the margins, are being dehumanized if we are not in proximity with those people, right? To be honest, when I was younger, and honestly not much younger, like this was only a few years ago, I, did, I caught the desire to really do the work of justice. I read books, I listened to podcasts, I listened to those who are wiser than me, uh, of which the list is long. But... Thank you, one person left. Um, but I had this idea that justice in particular was done in big, grand gestures, right? And why? Yeah, it was you, girl, Dane. Sorry, I should have credited you. Um, but why? I think we often highlight like these huge moments in the civil rights era, right? Uh, as these moments of justice or these big stories of people standing in the gaps for those experiencing injustice the bills that are fought for that dramatically impact people, like the Voting Rights Act, right? And those are obviously really, really good things. But I am far more convinced 
that justice, true justice, is predominantly done at a far more micro level, right? Justice can look a whole bunch of ways, and that is the case because reality, the reality of those experiencing injustice plays out in a lot of different ways, right? So we must be proximate with one another in order to be able to see some of the ways it plays out. Proximity also allows for relationships that God greatly uses in our lives, right? I... I do, I should, maybe I should have started with this, but I think one of the greatest fears I have in preaching a sermon sort of like toward this idea of justice or toward these things is I think we can take it and myself included can like internalize this like white savior complex aspect of justice, right? That we must do these things in order to be the heroes in our neighborhood, right? Or in order to be recognized as those doing work. And when a white savior complex is developed, two things happen. We miss out that God has already been at work wherever we're going, right? We think we're bringing God. We think we are God. He's already at work. Like, we're just joining him in the work, right? And then the second thing is people become problems to solve and not relationships to be had, right? Thus, proximity is an absolute must in the work of justice, right? If it is not, instead of developing the beloved community, we will develop another poorly run and out-of-touch nonprofit, right? I'm not saying all nonprofits are bad, by the way. I'm just saying like the poorly run out of touch ones are. Um, <laughs> all right, next one, strategic. We must not just be proximate to our neighbors, but we also must be strategic about how we point to the belovedness of people. Why? So this, this one like rubs people the wrong way sometimes, so hear me out, okay? I think when strategy is involved in justice and in a church, we can best empower giftings that people have received from God. When we get to strategize together, think about our approach to our neighborhood, or consider ways in which we might want to step out against the forces of evil, against particular people groups. We get to dream about the ways God has made each of us and the capacity we have to work together toward that, right? What, one idea um, that I like, and we threw out a bit ago, that I would potentially like to see come to fruition if it makes sense. I was like, what if we had a resource, like a pamphlet or a book or something, where we had point people in our churches for particular needs to be met, right? So say someone was looking for housing, and they mentioned that to someone. Well, we as a church know that we can, point, we can bring them to X to talk about that. Or someone was looking for a meal, we can bring them to person X. Maybe they're looking for discipleship. You should talk to X, right? Like what if we knew, we were a beloved community, we knew each other so immensely that we knew the giftings that each other had and were able to utilize them together, right? Strategy also includes considering what is in our neighborhood of Uptown and then considering ways in which we might point people to their belovedness in those spaces. Like what spaces exist within our larger Uptown and how, what are ways in which we can join God in what he's already doing to point to people's belovedness, right? I think a really beautiful way that this has played out uh, in this community in particular has been our relationship with Alden Lakeland, right? An assisted living facility on Lawrence. The ways in which some folks there and some of us, myself included, have experienced our belovedness more deeply has been radical because of those relationships. Uh, And it is just such a vital thing, uh, those relationships. Strategy is also willing to enter into the complexities and ambiguities of considering ways in which justice is at a systematic level, right? Again, I am not saying we're Jesus, so, like, do not hear 
me say that. But there's a level in which we probably want to emulate Jesus in some ways, right? Um, so I want you to think about this. When Jesus went to the cross, died, rose for our sins, did he just set us at net neutral? In other words, did he just save us from our sins and then leave us to try again with this whole not sinning thing? No, right? He knows that when we started following him, we will sin again. So he didn't only set us to net neutral, right? Listen to what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, did not sin, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, right? In other words, he did not just take away the bad thing, the result of our sin, death, but he replaced the bad thing with a good thing, death with life, our fallenness with his righteousness. So that when we are seen by God, we are seen as his beloved daughters and sons with whom he is well pleased, right? So if we're considering our work of justice in the same way, when we consider maybe something like hunger in our neighborhood, how do we strategically think, not just how about how to get people meals, but about, but about how we attack the very thing that is leaving people hungry, right? This can be far more complicated and exhausting. I recognize that. But unless we are willing to get to the roots, the tree is still going to rot, right? All right, let me get some water before I get into nonviolence. Um, that was kind of a funny statement. Um, okay. Nonviolence. Finally, our work of extending belovedness must be nonviolent, right? I said this just a few minutes ago, but Pete, uh, King points out that there are three types of violence, right, that lead to a lack of beloved community. So natural, naturally, the community must be antithetical to this, which is nonviolent. Now, I think when most folks, when they think of nonviolence, they, they think of sort of like those nonviolent direct action uh, moments, right? Like the um, Montgomery bus boycotts, Rosa Parks sit-in, things like that. And those things are part of nonviolence, but that's just a small part of it. That is almost like the outcome of living a nonviolent lifestyle, right? Nonviolent, nonviolence in this work is important because it helps us to recognize that the oppressed are not the only ones dehumanized in injustice. The oppressors are also dehumanized, right? So nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people, right? It seeks to defeat evil, not the people perpetuating the evil. Tanasha Luray, uh, she's an activist, was talking about the beloved community in a podcast I was listening to, and she talked about nonviolence being a way we absorb evil so it can't bounce throughout the universe. In other words, evil often begets evil, right? Violence begets violence. A people group is violent to another people group, and in retaliation, they are violent back, right? Uh, uh, evil bounces throughout the universe because the logical response to evil, like I said, is evil. Hate is the response to hate, violence to violence. So we, uh, in, in nonviolence, absorb the, vi- the, the evilness, right? Now, I want to be abundantly clear. Absorbing violence does not mean staying in situations where abuse and violence toward you are rampant. Like, that is not a reality uh, or, or an outcome of this. Believing that you have to stay in an abusive relationship is not absorbing evil. I want to say that clearly, right? We can absorb evil and still correct it, right? And sometimes, part of correcting it is leaving the relationship. So what does absorbing evil look like in particular, then, and practically? It means maybe when your kid your partner, a relative, a friend yells at you, you don't yell back, right? 
you let, them way, you let them know the way that they're treating you is harmful, right? And you seek reconciliation in that, right? Like, we experience uh, evilness, we experience violence, verbal violence, something like that. We don't retaliate with it back, but we let them know what is going on and we seek reconciliation when applicable, right? Nonviolence can also be only be practically, sorry, nonviolence can also only be practiced outwardly if nonviolence is also being practiced inwardly. So I want you to think, in what ways do you seek God in your violent thoughts? How do you release the impact of absorbing evil? How do we keep in step with the Spirit moment by moment in a way that reflects God amidst evil, right? There's a lot to be said about nonviolence. Um, clearly, there's a, been a lot that has been written, and so I would just encourage you to consider looking into that a little bit more, because I don't have the time this morning. So I want to end by saying this. Proximity, strategy, and violence, I recognize, nonviolence, <laughs> are not an easy ask, right? I recognize that this morning, I am asking many of us to consider significant life and mindset changes. But I know I can do this because we have a God who heard our cries against injustice, against dehumanization, and against a world wrought with sin, right? We have a God who heard us, and he became proximate by being born of a virgin in a manger. He came at a strategic time and in a strategic place, and he nonviolently absorbed the evils of this world, the payment for our sins, death, in the ultimate way, right? So that death may no longer have a hold on us. We pursue the beloved community because God's beloved imputed his belovedness onto us, right? Let me say that again. We pursue the, pursue the beloved community because God's beloved, Jesus, imputed his belovedness onto us. We can know and love because we have been known and we have been loved. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.